The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the International Codfather edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week where... That is, um, I believe, so So Dan has managed to put this up on the screen in the studio. Robin Wigglesworth. Hello. Hello. Robin Wigglesworth is a special guest. I'm Felix Salmon Effusion. Jordan Weissman is here. Thank you, Jordan, for turning up. Yeah, I'm back. I'm alive. Um, Anna Shemansky is here. <laughs> Hello. But Robin Wigglesworth, you, um, you have like a day job at the FT, but mainly you're just a professional Norwegian. Yes, and that's kind of my full-time job. And he is the codfather. And <laughs> you, you are the codfather. You translated this this thing that we were just listening to. Yeah, can you just explain what it is and what makes it... Like, yeah, what is it? And why are we all laughing? <laughs> <laughs> it's a video that the Norwegian Central Bank did uh, uh, together with the launch of some new money. They were coming out with new notes, and they looked pretty cool. They had- there was a picture of a cod <laughs> on the 200 krona note. <laughs> Which is roughly sort of 115 bucks or something, uh, and it's basically it's a parody-ish, but I think even better version of an old film, uh, an old uh, music video from the 80s in Norway, and they just decided to go to town with it. And frankly, I think it's the best musical and it and thing it, to features, imagine Norway it features since, uh-huh. or at least the Norwegian Central Bank. Yes, that's very true. It features a rap from the central bank governor. He only he talks a little bit. I wouldn't call it rapping by any. <laughs> but we do have a breakout rap part from DJ Codfather, which is frankly just yeah, it's perfection. Um, Dan, cue that Dan, up again. Can, just, can, we, can we have like, just keep this going and we'll get the, the breakout rap part? <laughs> They're cod being thrown into a bin right now. All right, we have to we have to wait a minute until we get to that. Right now, there are men in raincoats throwing cod. That's the Norwegian Central Bank. <laughs> How they turn the cold into money. Essentially, the technology behind the modern notes and how you can't count we've had enough of that. Okay. <laughs> okay, so that was the rap. Yes. And it was amazing. It's it's I, I think it's perfect. Especially where the way they talk about the obviously fascinating technological details <laughs> to prevent counterfeiting of this cat cod money. Which are exactly the same <laughs> as the technological details in every other banknote around the world. But in Norway it comes with a rap and yeah. a fish. Yeah, as one does in Norway. We rap to everything, really, especially when it's got anything to do with fish. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so let's let's try and... What are we talking about this week? Right. What are we <laughs> we are, we are gonna, so, so, yeah, we have decided that this week is going to be like a Scandi week here at Slate Money because it's not often you get a genuine codfather 
in the studio at Slate Money. So we are going to talk to Robin about Scandinavia generally. We're going to talk actually also about Black Monday, even though that wasn't particularly Scandinavian. And although, who knows, maybe there was some weird Scandi thing which started the entire... Well, I can link pretty much everything to Scandinavia somehow, so just give me a try. We will get you to link Scandinavia to Black Monday, but the news hook, for if we need a news hook for Scandinavia, is um, your amazing sovereign wealth fund, which you personally own all of, is now... <laughs> That would one trillion dollars. We're no. gonna we're gonna talk. Um, what what order, what order should we do this? In? I think we should start with the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund. Okay. That's worth yeah. trillion dollars. It's, 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 so, so your amazing sovereign wealth fund, which you personally own all of, is now one trillion dollars. You, Robin Wigglesworth, are the world's first trillionaire. Yes, thank you very much. And drinks on me later, of course. How does it feel? It feels pretty good. I don't feel I always see all of that money, but I did have free healthcare, free education, free university. Uh, so, you know, you do see some of the effects. Uh, but I only own technically one f- f- five millionth of the fund, roughly speaking. Well, around five million of us. What, what is one five millionth of a trillion dollars? Uh, I don't know. I, I think, think it's in- around 200,000 yeah. per person yeah. in Norway. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's... A nice Legit? chunk of change. I would say it's like most people, even in Scandinavia, let alone outside Scandinavia, don't have $200,000 worth of you know funds floating around in their name. So the way that Norway managed to come up with a trillion dollars just sitting in the bank is by saving its oil revenues, basically? Yeah, essentially. We found oil in back in the 60s, uh, actually the day before Christmas Eve. And obviously we, like everybody, right-thinking people, would celebrate Christmas Eve rather than Christmas Day. Yes, The day before that, we got a very nice Christmas present and we struck oil. And for the first few years, people didn't think it was going to amount to much. I mean, the, the finance ministry calculated that maybe at some point we might be able to afford a new pair of shoes for every Norwegian. That's how much money they thought they get out of it. But obviously, it ended up being a lot more, more than we could ever possibly spend. So uh, by 1990, they decided to set up a fund where they basically stashed all the money and all the governments and all the various parties promised to only spend the return of that fund, roughly so 4% a year. So that fund, in theory, should grow and grow and grow and then basically provided income stream for Norway for perpetuity. And and it's still in growth mode right now. There have been some uh, withdrawals, of course. I mean, especially after oil prices crashed, the government decided maybe we need a bit more of that money to protect the economy. But essentially, yes, it's still growing. I mean, it hit a trillion dollars. Most All the oil money gets stashed there, and the government's promised to spend roughly 4%. Now, they've actually lowered that to 3% a year. And if the economy's booming, they promise to spend less. And if the economy's doing worse, they spend a bit more. So it's this lovely little sort of counter-cyclical cushion that you have and as far as I can tell, it's like you're unique among oil economies in being able to get away with this. Well, I mean, well, okay. Saudi so Arabia Anna, has yeah, a Yeah, there are a number of sovereign wealth funds, either from oil and gas or metals and mineral wealth. Yeah. No, no. I mean, by, by yes, that's right. Let me What is that. unique in, in the Norwegian one, it's incredibly open. You can literally go to the website and see in real time the value of the fund go up and down. You can see every single stock it owns, every single real estate deal it's ever done. You can see every single bond it's done. You can see which companies excludes, how much it owns, the history of the fund. And you know, I used to cover the Middle East and the sovereign wealth funds there. You're lucky if you know how much money they have. So and that's about it. This is what's interesting to me about um, kind of Norway in general, actually, because you have these two ingredients that should theoretically just lead to all sorts of weird corruption. You have a huge, you have a huge amount of oil wealth, which petrostates are just known for being horrible, corrupt, dysfunctional places. And then you have a giant against sovereign wealth fund. And I mean, even in the U.S., pension funds can lead to all sorts of kind of small time corruption, um, just like backroom deals with comptrollers and stuff. So you have a lot of government controlled money, a big pool of it. And yet somehow it seems like Norway Has doesn't a, have it's, it's incredibly a, it's, not yeah, corrupt. It's avoided the resource curse. 
Yes. What, has it entirely? That's has it has it avoided the the part where everyone? Well, what parts of the resource curse has it? And, no. and what is the resource curse? Yes. The resource curse. I mean, Norway talk a lot about the Dutch disease. I mean, that's an yeah. elemental. But basically, the idea that when you have one industry that just dominates everything else and generates a lot of revenue and export revenue, it means the currency goes higher and higher, and in fact means everything else you have is just you can't export it anymore. So when the price of that commodity, let's say oil in Norway goes down, then suddenly the rest of the economy is basically obliterated and you have nothing else and you're kind of up the creek. But you do have the fund. Yeah, you do have the mm-hmm. fund. So Norway used the fund both to save money for rainy days, and which countries always have a few of, but also to prevent it from overheating the economy. If you all, if we all pour that money in, especially as the flow started getting really big in the 90s, would pour that into the economy, it would have caused rampant inflation, it would have caused the currency increase and would have basically obliterated the rest of Norwegian industry. Luckily, you know, oil dominates, but there are still other corners of, of, of Norway that are doing pretty well. So is the Norwegian oil fund basically the same as everybody else's sovereign wealth fund, but slightly more transparent and better managed? Or is it qualitatively just kind of unique in many ways? Well, I'm hardly uh, an objective uh, observer <laughs> here, but I, I have to admit the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund gets a lot of criticism in Norway, but I think, objectively speaking, is fairly unique, not just for its transparency, not just for its size, but how it's been set up very much with the idea that it should benefit future generations. A lot of other sovereign wealth funds often become piggy banks for the ruling elite or the local sheikh or whoever it'll be. And in Norway, that idea that this is for everybody in Norway for perpetuity is very heavily ingrained. They even changed the name to some entrenched It's now officially called the Government Pension Fund Global. And they put pension in there just to give it that kind of, oh, you can't kind of dive into it. Uh, and that's actually survived through quite a few generations uh, now that people just, or a, a, over a generation now that you know, various governments haven't dipped into that, even though the temptation is huge. Is that, this is because like, I, I guess I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around why it's worked out as well as it has. And is it just because like they had social democracy in place when they got oil money? Like they already sort of had really strong institutions around and they then kind of stumbled into this wealth. And so it kind of, it just worked out the way it did or... Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the only country that's actually found oil and then become a functioning democracy is Mexico. Every other country that found oil first has not become a functioning democracy. But the countries that became democracies first and then found oil have generally managed it a lot better. Interesting. And, and I think it's also important, we'll get into this a little bit more when we talk about the Nordic model in general, but when you're dealing with a lot of Scandinavian countries, there is just a long history of transparency, good government that I think makes it more likely that this model would work in Norway in the way it wouldn't work in perhaps another country. I mean, a good example of that are tax returns. I mean, this always freaks people out in the US especially, but in Norway, you can check everybody's tax returns online. Literally, <laughs> like when I started going out with my wife, her friends checked out how much money I made. Wait, seriously? Yeah. That's you like- can find out who makes most money on your street, who's the best paid sportsman, who's the best paid journalist in Norway. That's like zillowing so, someone's house to okay, an order so of magnitude know, crazier. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, know, I know a little bit about the Swedish model, um, but I don't know about the Norwegian model. I understand it in Sweden. Um, you can check out someone's tax returns, but you're not allowed to then publish what they what they make. You can find out for yourself, but you can't like basically broadcast that and then also i believe tell me if i'm wrong about this that if i check your tax return you get notified that i've checked your tax return and you know who i am it might have changed in norway i haven't lived there for close to 10 years now but no i mean in norway newspapers built tools around this so you could literally check who's the richest guy on my street i really like the idea of um kind of getting the equivalent of like a linkedin notification <laughs> for your tax returns like someone's been looking at your profile someone's been checking your tax and, returns and that's what happens in sweden I and, <laughs> and that but that but there you go we will get into the differences between norway and sweden mm. but the before we get there i want to ask about the nitty-gritty of the 
sovereign wealth fund because the one thing that we have all seen whenever you get billions upon billions of dollars in a big pile whether it's endowments or pension funds or anything else is they find it impossible to resist the allure of hedge funds and private equity and all of these alternative assets and they're all very opaque and a bunch of hedge fund managers wind up making lots of money um so can we therefore assume that there are loads of quiet hedge fund types getting paid gazillions of dollars for managing this money? Uh, probably not gazillions of dollars, but yes. So a lot of its mon- money is managed internally in Oslo. A lot of it is pretty much entirely passive as well, but they do hire external managers. And this is, frankly, a bigger subject in Norway than... Uh, any sort of oh we should be you know diving into the money and building massive towers here and there is actually whenever a particular manager has done very well and because it's all in the annual report all the compensation is there and the Norwegian press sees on the hedge fund manager XYZ who might have had a brilliant year but then also made 10 times more than the Norwegian Prime Minister, or 15 times, or 100 times more than the Norwegian Prime Minister. How much does the Norwegian Prime Minister make? Uh, Not much. (laughs) (laughs) But what's his value add, really? (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, Norway is a country that is fairly self-managing most of the time, so it's okay. This is important, though, because it's... you know, not just the Norwegian fund, but many sovereign wealth funds are now some of the biggest clients of private equity and hedge funds. And they are having, I actually think, a somewhat positive impact, because if you're looking for the clients that actually have issues with ESG concerns, the only ones who bring it up are the sovereign wealth funds and some of the the international pension funds. Remind me, ESG concerns? Um, environmental social governance. Ah, yeah. yeah, the Scandinavians have been huge on that for a while. Not just the sovereign wealth fund in Norway, but the Danish and the Swedish and Norwegian pension funds, which are also very, very large anyway. And the sovereign wealth fund, the NBIM, Norges Bank Investment Management, has enshrined this very strongly in its own governance. Since 2004, they've been excluding companies that they feel break their own rules, including Walmart, and here in the US because they felt they took a very anti-labor position enough so that they decided to chuck Walmart out of its portfolio. So d- is that in the sovereign wealth fund as well will not have any Walmart stock? Zero. No Walmart stock, no Walmart debt. I'm- so this Walmart. is fascinating to me. They are passive but they are also kind of ideological. So instead of just buying an S&P 500 index fund, they will go out and buy every country every company in the S&P 500 except for Walmart and the other ones they disapprove of. Essentially, they they use various screens. They can do it in bespoke fashion or do through various ESG screens. I mean, they actually do it in very custom ways. So Walmart is one that, for example, wouldn't be screened out of a lot of ESG uh, indices, but they will also have they also have environmental concerns. So no coal companies, tobacco. Despite tobacco being legal in Norway, the Sovereign Wealth Fund does not invest in any tobacco companies. Anybody involved with cluster munitions or nuclear weapons, that's Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, a few other US companies, and some com- companies that they feel uh, work in, in this sort of an iffy way on the West Bank. So, so I think you and and they're probably going to have the question, exact same question. I, yeah. I've written about this and I've never had a chance to ask an actual Norwegian is how do they get how do you get over the cognitive dissonance <laughs> of being a petrostate that then won't invest in coal which i mean like i i think it's probably a good thing that you're not doing it but just like how do you how do yeah. you make that yeah <laughs> this is the, the central conflict of norway and oil norway is incredibly green i mean in a lot of things <laughs> we started recycling if you put things in the wrong bucket in norway um, that's a social ostracization. So you're uh, a reluctant petrostate. <laughs> yes, I think it's a sort of we've or roughly petrostate. made our uneasy peace with it, but we do force the I mean the oil company Statoil, which is Norway's biggest oil company, the source of most of the money that goes into the sovereign wealth fund, is by oil company standards pretty clean, uh, and we pay money to Brazil to protect rainforests in the Amazon. We pay money to China. We support Chinese building of hydro dams. But Norway gets 97 to 99% of all its energy from hydro now because we have all these beautiful big uh, waterfalls around the country. So the oil is, you know, 
it's hard to say no to, but uh, you know, it's a handy thing to have. But there's large swaths of northern Norway that are now banned. There is no oil exploration going to protect the ecosystem up there. So yeah, even though it is hard to not view there to be a little bit of hypocrisy, on the other hand, you could argue that right now in this age of passive investment, where you don't have a lot of shareholder activism, unless it's the worst kind, having something like the Norwegian um, Sovereign Wealth Fund that has so much power because it has so much money and actually cares about these concerns yes. is important. It, we should say, what, what is it? They control like 1% of, of all, all global equities, equities yeah. which yeah. is 1.3% now, actually. That's probably going to grow, mm-hmm. right? Like that's yeah. only going to get bigger because wealth compounds and oil wealth also <laughs> compounds, or at least yeah. for a while it will. So they're going to become more powerful. In, in 2016, they voted, I think, over 11,000 shareholder meetings. And how they vote and why they voted that way is put on the government uh, the government pension funds website the day after every single vote. Right. So you if you see it in real time almost. So if you're using look you're getting the money from oil but then you're using it to really lower the carbon footprint of the rest of the world then that's probably net net good for the world. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. So now I want to expand this a little bit to all of Scandinavia, because a lot of what we've been talking about here is not uniquely Norwegian. Um, and for all that the Scandies love to obsess about the differences between the Norwegians and the Swedes or between the Danes and the Finns, um, there are more similarities and people love to talk about the scandinavian model and part of that scandinavian model i think it's not just norwegian is this kind of concern for the environment for the world i know the norwegian foreign aid budget as a percentage of gdp is like way higher than almost anybody else's um and if you remember back to the worst ever presidential election campaign in the history of the world there was a lot of talk of from bernie sanders about like i want america to become more scandinavian um is this uh is that what is, what does it mean to be scandinavian and is this something that all right thinking people should seek to emulate uh, that's a great question i got a lot of those around the the presidential election as you might expect uh, like you say there are actually really big similarities between the Scandinavian uh, economies that, frankly, even Scandinavians don't always see. Broad brush, I'd say that you know, high tax, high welfare uh, economies that have managed to combine you know, a fairly big state and a high tax take with still fairly dynamic economies are still driven largely by the private sector. And very high sin taxes, right? They love yes. taxing alcohol like you would not believe. Generally, the Scandinavian countries also have a skew towards consumption taxes. Sin taxes are among those. So Norway makes, I haven't checked this again since I lived there, but in 2007, Norway made almost as much money from taxes on alcohol and tobacco as they made from income tax. Wow. Yeah. So it's because they do expensive they, for, buying for a beer drink. there. For, yeah. all, for all the alcohol is extremely expensive, they do still drink a lot. A lot, that, yes. That's like if you combine 19th century America's tax structure <laughs> with 20th century America's tax structure. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, it, you know, people enjoy a tipple there. Now, I do think, though, when we're talking about the big state dynamic growth, I think it's important to remember, if we're talking about Sweden, that Sweden's growth actually was much slower between the 70s and 90s when you had a much bigger state. And then they had the reforms in the 90s that were much more market friendly. And that actually is part of the reason why now you have that growth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's talk very quickly about the Swedish banking crisis, because... Why not? We can, we can, this is like a nerdy podcast. And if we want to talk about the Swedish banking crisis, we can talk about the Swedish. It's, it's, every time there's a banking crisis anywhere in the world, everyone always says, we should have the, we should deal with this the way the Swedes did. Certainly in, um, like 2008 in America, everyone was like, can we do the Swedish thing here? <laughs> I remember. And, 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 and the answer to that question seemed to be, 
Well, it would be great if we could, but we're too big and too heterogeneous. And the great advantage of being Scandinavian is that you're relatively small and relatively homogenous. You can get away with doing bolder things. Well, so what exactly? Let Felix give yeah. us the the background of the field. No, of the I, I feel, I feel like there's only one person to okay. give us the what? background. Okay, of the Robin. Well, I wasn't in Sweden at the time, but this links to Black Monday, actually. Yeah. So when uh, Norway found oil, Sweden was doing pretty well in the 80s, but not so fantastically well. And Denmark had the riches, but Scandinavia went through the yuppie period with, you know, with swagger. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we were the ultimate yuppies. Big, fat, mobile phones, buying real estate, inflation going crazy. Nokia. Yes, Ericsson. exactly. Yes. No, it was yeah. it was a boom time in Scandinavia and in Finland as well. Um, but people you know, borrowed a bit too much money. And um, when the Black Monday crash happened in the US, the shocks rippled through the world. And you know, all saying about the US sneezes and the world catches a cold is true. And in Scandinavia, we caught a really nasty cold. Uh, and basically, most of the banks went bankrupt in Norway, Sweden and Denmark. In Norway, the entire banking system was nationalized. All the big banks were nationalized. Uh, so the remnant is still that some banks are still partially government owned, uh, or the Swedish owned, and Sweden still owns you know, some of its banks as well. And so the, basically, the the solution to the crisis, the Swedish solution to the banking crisis was nationalization. nationalization. Um, and, you know, not in a kind of French way, because it's a sort of ideological view that banks should be owned by the state, but just in a kind of practical way of we are the lender of land last resort and you're insolvent and we're going to put in the money and we're going to take them over. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I feel is underrated in politics in general, but also underappreciated when it comes to the Scandinavian or Nordic model is pragmatism. I mean, this is actually a region where politicians on the left have done the biggest privatizations and politicians on the right have generally done some of the biggest welfare improvements across the region. Pragmatism is really the, the reigning ideology in Scandinavia. It gets cloaked in ideological language sometimes, but fundamentally people sit down and work out, well, this is probably a sensible thing to do and let's do that then. And is that the same as... What we had under Obama, this kind of technocratic approach to problems, was there a difference? No, I mean, with the banking sector, it was just they decided, look, this is easier. The banks are insolvent. Let's just nationalize a lot of them. And the difference is they didn't have our idiotic Congress. I mean, this is in (laughs) in Scandinavia. They get things done. I I think I completely agree with you. I think when you talk about the Nordic model and where it can and cannot work, I think it's important to remember that non-ideological element because you can't just take that model and plop it into some other, you know, political system. Well, um, I, I completely agree because you can't just copy models and copy countries willy-nilly. I mean, it's hard. There are big differences. The US is a bigger country and it is more ideological and you have a, shall we say, a slightly sort of this dysfunctional Congress. But I do find that Americans especially are too fatalistic about this. You know, countries are a result of public policy choices that we make, and we can make choice about what kind of countries we want to be and move in that direction. Yes, you can't suddenly turn into Denmark or Sweden or Norway overnight, but you can see what works and what doesn't work and learn from other countries and 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 implement that. And this is where I think the big question which I have comes in, which is, can you? And specifically, um, what I think you're talking about, whether it's nationalizations, privatizations, or, I mean, I always remember this story about how Norway managed to go from driving on the left-hand side of the road to driving on the right-hand side of the road literally overnight and with almost no like negative repercussions, like in a way that you can't even imagine virtually any other country being able to do. Um Because there does seem to be, on a deep level, a broad national consensus on a lot of issues. You can basically say that Norwegians and Nordic people in general and Scandinavians in general, you know, they agree very broadly on a lot of things. You don't have a deeply divided country like you do in the US. And, you know, one of the reasons for that, perhaps, is that they're small and Everyone's kind of related to each other. They're racially very homogenous. And it seems to be easier to just come together as a community than it is in, if you know, we've seen all of these elections in places like um, Spain or 
US or UK where you get these deeply divided countries and that's really impossible there. You can have divided uh, governments. I mean, we basically haven't had a majority government uh, for most of the post-war period, apart from the first few years in Norway, at least. Uh, so there's like there's a cons- there's a tradition for consensus building and coalition building. I agree that the fact that the countries are small just makes it a lot easier. Bigger countries are hard to run. You know, they are far broader. You know, the difference between California or New York or you know Arkansas or Wyoming they're, they're huge. These are countries in an almost in their own right. But I still think, you know, if we give up on learning from other countries uh, and other cities or friends and neighbors, I think it's a little bit it's a little it's a little bit lazy. I, I still think that there are a lot of things that yes, you couldn't do here. You couldn't for example, in Norway, they decided to kill off all old school radio and just move all digital. Basically, they gave people a year to adjust, but then they just did it. That would be hard in a country like Norway, in the in the US or well, even they, so UK. They did that with TV in the UK. Yeah, no, but see, so the UK did it. I remember. The, I think that was pretty controversial. At the but time that was well. controversial, exactly. Yeah. That you get you get more pushback. Well, you can do these things. I mean, for me, that my pet peeve is childcare in the US or for the U- in the UK as well, for that matter. I, Being a childcare is something that economically we know is better getting more women out into work. The US female participation rate is below Japan's now. In Scandinavia, if you want to look at why Scandinavia is pretty wealthy, it's because close to 80% of all women are working. That is a huge boon. So actually subsidized or free childcare is actually something that might pay for itself it's something that's a slam dunk. I think most people in the US would quite welcome it. It's just the implementation yeah. just drags on or never happens or probably never will happen, sadly. I have one last question, which is about entrepreneurship. And, you know, it's not that, you know, not that Scandinavia is some massive tech hub like Spotify notwithstanding. Um but there is a lot of anecdotal um, storytelling about the idea that if you have a strong social safety net, then you're more likely to be willing and able to take risks because you know that there's a good statistical chance that you're going to fail. But at the same time, you know that if you do fail, it's not the end of the world. And that helps to drive social mobility and entrepreneurship. I, 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 Sorry, I'll, I'll let Robin go first, but there's actually, it's not just an- anecdotes, there's actually a lot of data, data research on, on this issue, and it varies within Scandinavia uh, a great deal. Sweden is actually a venture capital hub. Like, mm. it, it very much is like top 10 for percentage of venture capital's uh, portion of the economy, that kind of thing. Um, and it has a very high startup rate, um, like internationally competitive. Uh Norway, on the other hand, much less so. Uh, it's it's much more of a traditional big company economy um, along the well, oil economy yeah. <laughs> with a giant hedge fund attached. Well, around the yeah, that's very true. Actually, in Sweden, it has a thriving tech. Uh, I mean, the technology industry there, I think, is compared to the economy, might actually be larger than the tech economy right, in the US. That's, I think. that's a function uh, of a low denominator. Yes, exactly. Yeah, But I mean, it's, they've done a really good job. They're also great at music exports. Yeah. Yeah. I, though I do think it's important that if you look at larger companies, if you look at listed companies, the, the vast majority of listed companies throughout Scandinavia were founded between like 1880 and 1950. You yes. don't have a lot of large, big new companies. Well, there haven't been that many of the big family-owned companies have gone public. The, my yes, I there's anecdotal and also qualitative and quantitative work that shows actually Scandinavia is fairly dynamic. It's one of the reasons why we can support a fairly big welfare system. And I think, like Felix said, it is partially because you know if you work at IBM and want to start a big company in the U.S. and you fail, your kids will not have healthcare. You might not be able to send them to university. You might not be able to feed your family. In Norway, your kids will have healthcare. Their kids will have school. They'll have university. They'll have dental. They'll have everything. So it gives you that safety net to do things. And there have been studies that show that when you look at desire for entrepreneurship, how many people dream of working for their own company, the US is in the top of the world. Scandinavia is pretty high as well. But if you look at the percentages of people who work for a business they start themselves, those rates are far higher in Scandinavia than they are in the US. Because here there are so many inhib- inhibitors towards that plunge then in Scandinavia and, and, you can yeah do. and that's the other thing is that entrepreneurship in general means two different things yeah like it can mean 
I have the ability and willingness to support myself and to start up a business where I can pay myself a good living and I don't need to work for someone else. Or it can mean I want to start a massive company with millions of dollars of venture capital and turn it into the next Facebook. And they're yeah. two very, very different conceptions of what entrepreneurship is. And that's is. the second part is a tricky part. That Norway has a lot of, or Scandinavia has a lot of smaller businesses, but getting venture capital is harder, especially outside Sweden, outside of tech. And it's very hard to grow those big companies that you know, the really big ones, the listed ones. Also because, frankly, the countries are individually very small. And the old thing, despite us vaguely understanding each other, we speak roughly the same language, there are very few, if any, true pan-Nordic companies. And that has been the real sort of issue here, that you can start a company, you can grow it. There's even sort of statist sort of stipends and help and tax breaks to encourage that. But growing that to sort of yeah, the next Facebook just... Uh, is very, very hard, if yeah. not impossible. Uh, when you have, you know, when the tech economy is so focused on scale right now and you can't scale, that seems like kind of the critical problem. But, you know, I, I do think that um, the the Swedish model does show one important thing about the role of the safety net uh, and venture capital, which is that, uh, and that kind of entrepreneurship, which is that, um, you know, having a big safety net and high taxes isn't necessarily going to stop people from wanting to take over the world that way. Um, Sweden didn't have much of a, a startup economy, like kind of a, a Silicon Valley style startup economy until the 90s after the banking crisis when uh, when they kind of went through all these financial market reforms. Um, and those actually made it easier to venture for venture capital to thrive. And the fact that it did along with high taxes and or has thrived insofar as it has in this small country with high taxes and with a large safety net, I think says you, you can combine these two things. And I think that is actually when you talk about lessons learned for other countries like the US, that's a really important one that we're not going to, you know, you can raise taxes and not lose Silicon Valley necessarily, or at least it indicates that's possible. Yeah. yeah and Silicon Valley itself is in a high tax state. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, you know, most people don't start a company to sort of necessarily just profit maximize. I mean, nobody sits there thinking I'm going to work, you know, 50, only 50% of my capacity with my own company because the government takes 20 or 30%. And also the headline corporate tax rates are actually lower in yeah. Scandinavia than they are in the US. In the US, if you're a multinational, there's all sorts of fun and games you can do with the tax code that allows you to pay in a far lower effective rate. But in Scandinavia, the actual headline corporate tax rate is much lower and that's something you see whenever you read like the Cato Institute on Scandinavia what they see in the Nordic model is not high taxes they say ethnic homogenous and low corporate tax rates and obviously that's what they like and the Nordic model is a bit like it's like magic mirror people see exactly what they want to see in it this episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery which is a podcast company and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisitions like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. But let's go back to Black Monday <laughs> because, it's, because it's the 30th anniversary this week. And so, you know, we're going to light a candle or 30 candles on a, on a birthday cake and say 30 years ago this week was one of the most impressive examples of market failure that I can ever remember. Um, you know, we, we have stock market bubbles. We have stock markets going up and stock markets going down. I think um, the stock market decline of 2000 was probably bigger. The... Um, negative economic effects of the stock market crash in 2008 was obviously much, much bigger. But just in terms of markets, that like nothing can compare to how they just failed on Black Monday. And 
as you say, like for all that it didn't have a lot of um, negative repercussions in the US, it did in Sweden. Yes. And Norway. Yeah, I mean, I'd argue that 1987, the Black Monday crash is probably the first modern market crash in that it happened partially because of computers, and it was certainly accelerated by some of these very sort of nascent embryonic computer trading programs. It was global and it was very quick. And then, of course, economically, it proved to be fairly shallow in the US. In Scandinavia, it was worse. In Europe, it was in the middle. But it was a global one that, you know, people notice around the world. And suddenly, you know, we don't didn't have this quick communication to then as we do today. But it was something that traveled around the world in a day. It was so, yeah, and again, this seen was, everywhere. This so, was Anna, a, yeah. yeah, give us a quick primer on portfolio insurance and what the hell happened that so, day. Yeah, I mean, again, this was essentially a technicals-driven crisis. So there are a few different theories about what actually caused it. I mean, there was... Some fear that rates were going to increase, that the government was going to be cracking down on mergers. Um, The actual instigating event, I think, actually had to do with this Illinois bank that people were worried they weren't going to be able to settle index trades. But what really caused this crash to become a significant crash was this thing called portfolio insurance, was essentially a product that a lot of um, managers had that, in theory, was supposed to protect them. So if you, if prices started declining, you would start selling index futures. And then in theory, that was supposed to cap your downside. The problem with this is that when one person's doing it, that's okay. When the entire market or a large portion of the market is doing, that's just going to exacerbate the crisis. And it's also important to remember that it wasn't just that the volume of these of these trades. It was that they were also going through a different system. They were going through um, this com- new kind of like computer-based system that was never designed for this volume. And it just essentially collapsed. It was something like th- 30% of trades failed. So explain how uh, what seems like a sort of market structure systems failure in New York and Chicago has global repercussions. There was some level of portfolio insurance in London, but I mean, was there portfolio insurance going on in every single stock market in the world? Like, or what caused this to be global? What caused banks to fail in Finland? Well, in, in Scandinavia, it was just, it was the yuppie era. People had borrowed too much money, they invested lots of money in the stock market. Everyone was piling in. Day trading was exploding across Scandinavia, lesser extent Europe, but to certain extent in the UK. And the thing is, the US is the world's biggest economy. It's the world's biggest market. And when you wake up one day and suddenly see the Dow has dropped 20% in a day, that's worse than you know, Black Tuesday and, and the great that sort of triggered the Great Depression. That for psychological and technical reasons, triggers you know one of these Minsky moments that uh, Hyman Minsky um, thought of they, the one that that break that suddenly shatters those animal spirits, and you know the economic fundamentals were probably more solid in the U.S. than they were elsewhere, and in Scandinavia, just all the banks had just massively overextended themselves and went bust. So we need to ask, you know, because the other thing that's going on right now is we're not just celebrating or commiserating or doing whatever it is one does 30 years after a stock market crash, but we are also reading headlines about, yet again, new all-time highs in the US stock market. Um, And for, I would say, most of the last, what, 30 or 40% of the run-up in US stocks has been accompanied by great worries about, oh my God, are we in a new bubble? We could crash any minute. Um, and the more those worries seem to appear, the higher the stock market seems to go. Um, what I don't see is the kind of frothiness, the day trading, the leverage, and all those other things which tend to accompany like the prelude to a crash. So the question which we need to ask, because it's the Black Monday segment, is, is this a risk today? Yes and no. I don't think we'll ever have something like Black Monday again. I mean, that was first of all, we have circuit breakers that kick in that prevent you. Just the stock market can drop twenty percent. You know, as Anna said, you know, the systems were just overwhelmed 
1987. They just weren't equipped for this. I mean, people were hitting refresh buttons on their Quattron machines <laughs> and only finding out every 15 minutes what the market was doing. And that just, when you don't even know, you can't even see what's happening. You just, you panic completely. You know, it's important to remember, even during the great financial crisis, we never had anything that bad in mm-hmm. one day. But there are some worrying similarities. Some of the things like at the time people were worried about uh, Iran. There were tensions between the US and Iran. There was missiles flying around. There was you know, bellicose ret- rhetoric. And today we have North Korea. We had a you know, great run up in asset prices and stock markets. And we have the same then. We also had a weaker dollar because of the plaza call. The dollar been weakening. There were some tensions because of that. And you could argue we have the same thing today. The one thing I think is fascinating is in the portfolio insurance uh, issue there's something called volatility control and this is one of my favorite bogeymen and maybe i'm panicking too much about this but essentially has a lot of the same similarities uh, to portfolio insurance in that it's what people call it's pro-cyclical it sells when the markets are going down and they buy when markets are going up uh, um anna are you have have you nerded out on vol control? Well, yeah, and you have like managed futures, like CTAs, essentially these. What's you know, a CTA? It's just a, um, it's just basically essentially a strategy where you're, I mean, you're selling, you're you're either buying or selling like entire indices or commodities or currencies, and so essentially what you're doing is momentum trading, where you're either selling into a down market or you're buying into an up market. Yeah, and as Anna said, you know, these things make perfect sense. Targeting a specific level of volatility. Say, if you want ten percent volatility in the stock market, and if it goes above that, you sell, and if it goes below that, you buy. That works for an individual fund, but the worry is when everybody does it. You know, potentially it can overwhelm if you have the right confluence of bad factors at the same time. And it's important because also there have been a lot of inflows into these types of funds because they've been some of the few funds that have actually been performing well, not surprisingly, because we've been in an up market. Yeah. So to have any has this product ever been tested in like a serious correction? Like, were the, was it around in no, like twenty fifteen when we it haven't like 10%? we haven't had as well? That, yeah, that, that wasn't serious. not necessarily like a correction of any we, kind. We yeah. had yeah. we had a flash of it in August twenty fifteen. Yeah. So August twenty yeah. fourth was one of the and it's you know it's again it's one of the things that we'll never know exactly what happened, but the market to put it technically crapped out <laughs> and. It's quite possible that some volatility targeting strategies exacerbated what was some quite weird stuff that happened in the market. And there was lots of stuff with ETFs and that we probably can't go into here, but we suddenly saw a flash of what it might look like at some point. And that's so what we've seen a few times now with various different flash crashes over the year, over the past decade is that they tend to happen very quickly. And if you happen to be out at lunch while the flash crash happens and you come back after lunch you, and you like, you wouldn't notice anything. Everything's already bounced back at that point. Um, dip. And, and the, so the question is, is that just breeding complacency that if you're not going to, if you're not like looking at the minute by minute ticker, you have nothing to worry about. Or is this a case where if things were just a tiny little bit worse, they would actually start feeding on themselves and it could be much, much, much worse. And I think it very possibly could. I mean, I think there's a difference when you're talking about like a technicals driven crash, like some like glitch in the computer system almost. And then when you're talking about legitimate concerns about fundamentals, and then if you have that, and then on top of that, you have all of these ETFs and index funds and all the, you know, vol strategies, what could then happen? And I would argue you were saying previously how you haven't seen this kind of froth and exuberance that we normally see in a bull market. But I would argue if you look at, say, China, I do think you have this froth and exuberance and over leverage that is completely characteristic of what happens before a significant crash. So the next question is, let's say that there is a crash and certainly every time stocks have gone to these levels, every time in history, they have dropped by a significant amount, like 20, 30, 40%. Um, Let's say that happens again, which is entirely possible. Um, Would that be bad? I feel like there's two different ways that can happen. You know, it can happen in the kind of 2000s way where like the, the stocks go up and then they go down and people who bought when they were expensive wind up losing money. But it's a kind of, 
it hurts the rich and it's no harm, no foul. Or it can happen in a sort of 2008 way, in which case it just really devastates the economy. Yeah, and that's a great question. I think it boils down to whether it's a sort of a crash led by this financial economy or the real economy. I think in 2008, the reason why the market was just obliterated for a period was because it was based on real economic issues. There were real fundamental bad things going on that, frankly, you know, could have ended in sort of economic Armageddon. And we, you know, it was bad, but it wasn't quite that bad. I think when you look at so the dot com crash, it was almost like the classic bull run in markets, a bubble, and that collapsed. You know, it caused a mild recession, but it wasn't too bad. I think Anna's point about technical versus fundamental rallies. I happen to think that I don't think the stock market is going to kind of blow up anytime soon because, frankly, the economy is doing pretty good. And the global economy is doing pretty good. I mean, it's nothing to write home about, but I think we should respect the fact that the you know, global economy is growing at 4 or 5% a year, and that's not too bad. Like, that can change. But until that changes, we might have some technical glitches in markets, but it's probably not going to be Armageddon. Wow, that was amazing. Yeah, Robin Wigglesworth for the win. <laughs> um, yeah. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So we're going to have a numbers round, um, but before we do, what? Let's do a little sort of bit of fantasy here. Let's reverse engineer the crash. It's going to come, and the question is, what's the catalyst? What's the event that causes the crash? Well, if I'm, this is my doomsday prophecy. So take it with a pinch of salt. But I think it's not. It's it's plausible at least. But let's say the Federal Reserve actually raises rates quicker than people expect next year. Maybe because, let's say, John Taylor becomes the next Fed chair. Damn it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and he starts, yeah, Taylor rule all the way, all day, and starts jacking up interest rates. So the market kind of freaks out and volatility goes up. And then we have these short volatility trades. People are betting on volatility staying low. They're saying, oh my God, oh my God, I need to hedge myself. And they do that by selling into the market. And that causes the market volatility to go even higher and the market starts selling off. And that starts bringing in these volatility control strategies as well. Just pours more fire onto this uh, fuel, onto this fire. And you suddenly have a, a very severe market correction that there aren't enough fundamental old school stock pickers to arrest. And then people wake up in the evenings, you know, watch TV in the evenings, wake up in the morning to headlines about the Dow dropping 200%, 200 points, 50 points, 10 points, 500 points. And that starts affecting real economic sentiment, like the actual real economy. And you suddenly have an economic recession that then again causes these cycles to feed Vicious on themselves cycle. again and again. So I'm I'm slightly more sanguine than you on some level. I think that even if John Taylor does become the next Fed chair, and I don't think he will, um, he doesn't have enough support on the board to be able to just unilaterally decide that he's going to start raising rates and bring the rest of the board along with him. Um, and I also think that the American stockholding public is a lot more grown up than it used to be in the face of stock market declines. And if stocks go down, they're not going to start panicking and selling real money. That said, I do think that you could easily see a stock market crash. And I suspect that if you do, it's going to be precipitated by Donald Trump, unsurprisingly. Um, I, I think my my scenario would probably be that um, tax reform looks like it's going to fail or does fail to get through Congress. So all of those hopes about corporate profits being boosted by tax reform uh, evaporate. And then sort of simultaneously, Trump announces that he's pulling out of NAFTA. And you put those two t together and I can easily see everyone just saying, okay, this is the end. Like, it's only going to go down from here and they start selling. 
So unsurprisingly, I'm going to say it'll be something in China. (laughs) (laughs) You're all hitting anyway. Yeah, I mean, I would say either, you know, an event on the Korean Peninsula, obviously. But but also, I mean, again, you have an issue right now in the Chinese financial system where like a large portion of the banking sector is funded with these really short-term liquid liabilities. And then they're using that money to make long-term illiquid investments. And you have the government right now in between this like Scylla and Charybdis of wanting to delever, wanting to kind of slow the housing market, but still needing that housing market to maintain growth. And if something goes off in that, that's where I really feel like if China sneezes, the rest of the world like catches Ebola at this point. Um so my worst case scenario is a combination of all these, but <laughs> so it is invo- it involves specifically John Taylor becoming Fed chair. And the reason this is a concern for a lot of people is that he apparently, wa- A, he has the support of um, Vice President Mike Pence, which is important. Uh, B, he apparently walked into Trump's office and managed to give a really good first impression. And that's how people get appointed in this administration. Um, so you he know, looks like he should be. A he, no, he really does. He looks like uh, he, he looks like he could play the part from um, central casting. Isn't that what Trump likes? <laughs> he really does. And so I don't think that John Taylor could walk in and r- rapidly uh, increase rates the way that um, some people fear uh, that the markets have already got a little jittery about. What I do think he could do is gradually increase them faster than they would under Yellen and pull some of the money out of the market and just like there'd be just literally just like kind of crunch or just kind of you know, there'll be less liquidity around. And then that gets to what happens if there's an international crisis in somewhere like China. One of the things that on back, like a lot of people talk about on background about John Taylor and sort of whisper about off the record from his time in, um, at, in, at the Treasury Department when he dealt with international issues is that he doesn't really understand international finance. And so basically- It's like it doesn't fit into my little model no, I've designed right here. <laughs> he, he really doesn't. They're just like, if you get outside of like the academic mo- like monetary or economics models that apply to the US, he, his brain just goes haywire. So you could end up with a Fed chair who doesn't understand how to deal with an international crisis or how you should react when all of a sudden global markets start melting. And then that is, that is I think, a potential uh, how you get a real crash. Um, but we do want a proper numbers round. So what's your number, Jordan? Um, my number is... One second, I have to pull it up because there's some reading material that goes with it. My number is 23%, which is uh, how much the stock of National Beverage Corp fell before its CEO put out just like a crazy fucking press release. Um, National Beverage Corp is the company that makes lacrosse. Or LaCroix? LaCroix? How do you pronounce it? LaCroix. LaCroix. Yeah, right? Anyway. Although apparently it's officially pronounced LaCroix. Because, oh, it is LaCroix. Yeah. Okay. Well, you drink it. because Americans can't spell French. Everyone at this table drinks the, 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 that seltzer. I've got like my you know case of Pomplamousse at home. Um, but apparently the stock has just been like collapsing. And... The CEO just put us like weird Trump-esque, like you kind of have to read it. Like there are a lot of all cap sentences and like triple exclamation points. And then finally he goes, our perpetrator perpetrator stimulating self-serving movement by stating falsehoods, creating rumors and deliberately, deliberately manipulating fizz value. The stock is called fizz. We think so, exclamation point. So it's just, anyway. Wait, a, and this and this came after the decline or before the decline? After the decline. He thinks that, he and, thinks and that this, short and this, sellers are trying this to undo this CEO fizz. statement effectively stopped the decline? I don't know if it, well, it's up today. So I don't know, maybe, I mean, maybe it just sort of, correlation doesn't mean causation here, Felix. <laughs> I feel like this, I, all CEOs should put out crazy all-cap yeah. statements. It obviously works. There's, I you mean, can become elected president. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Anna, what's your number? My number is $20,000. Apparently, that's the amount of money per hour that millennial consultants are charging. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, so, so this is one of these This fans. is my new job, yeah. I've decided. God, I'm going to become what? the millennial whisperer. Jesus. Years ago, I put out one of those articles of Derek Thompson the Atlantic that was a classic like stepping stone to millennial consultantum, and we didn't do it, and such yep, a, yep. one of my great fuck-ups in exactly. life. Man. Anyway, go. So yeah, continue. this was this New York Times article from last week um, citing these generational consultants who are working with Fortune 500 companies to teach them how to speak to the youngins. And But my favorite part of the entire article was this quote from an older uh, Deutsche Bank managing director. To sit down with someone who's on the org chart six levels below me is educational. <laughs> 
you learn about yourself and how you differ from them. So now, if you've paid somebody $20,000 an hour and you still don't know that you probably shouldn't be quoted referring to people <laughs> by where they sit on the org chart, perhaps you've overpaid. That's mine. Millennials are also just like 30-somethings now. That's the other thing. Like, it's like I'm officially a millennial. Yeah, like we're, An old millennial. Yeah, like I, I may not have been, I may have been only one during the you know crash of 87, but I'm an adult. <laughs> that was serious. Um, Robin, what's your number? Uh, six weeks. Ah. That's how uh, long it takes China to build a new Rome. <laughs> not one day, but they do build a new Rome, the equivalent of a new Rome every in, six In terms weeks. of cities? In cities, in, in office, in real estate, but generally office space, like, uh, and this housing. Is, this is contemporary Rome. A this fi- is last year the they built the equivalent of the city of the size of Rome every six weeks, which I think just goes to show they're still massively overbuilding. I mean, it's a big mm-hmm. country, but it's, it's very overbuilt and they can't seem to quit that construction boom that they used to gin up growth with. I'm sure those cities are much more efficient than Rome. Um <laughs> That wouldn't be hard. Uh, my number, I think I'm not going to do the ETF number. I'm going to do 22%, which is the amount that pedestrian deaths, number of pedestrians killed by cars in the US has increased over the past two years. Um, it was 5,987 last year. So 6,000, that's up 1,100 from two years previously. And that's cars basically running people over and killing them every year. And that is cell phones. That is people looking at their phones and saying, uh, oh, shit, I'm about, oh, too late. Yeah, I also, it, it is amazing to me because like in New York, you, I mean, you literally see people on every mode of conveyance possible on their cell phones, like on bikes, on motorcycles. <laughs> and it's amazing. So, yeah, I mean, the car was one of those inventions which wound up killing millions of people. And we yeah. look back and go, how on earth did we even allow that to happen? But the cell phone seems to be moving in the same direction. But on Twitter, that note, Twitter's <laughs> worth it, man. Yeah. But on right. the other hand, you get you get to giggle at that tweet. Um, I think that's it. I think that's all of Slate Money for this week. So thank you for listening. Thank you to Dan Schrader for producing. There's a bunch of things I need to tell you in the end before we bring this pod- podcast to a close. Uh, number one, you guys are amazing. Um, we had that pledge drive, you recall the pledge drive about Slate Plus, and you all went along to slate.com slash money plus, and you all signed up, like every single one of you. And we crushed the competition. It wasn't even close. We got like twice as many signups per listener as anyone else, because you guys are amazing. So thank you very, very much for doing that and for su- subscribing to Slate Plus. And we are super great- grateful and you guys rock. And I think it's also because I spelled it out that one time. <laughs> yes. And it's also I because, because... I want I want the thanks that, that I'm was doing, the difference. Felix. Yeah, and it's also because Jordan spelled plus because <laughs> like some of you guys... like we, People were punching in the plus sign. <laughs> they weren't going anywhere. Look, I, I headed that off, that disaster. Anyway. So there is a prize here. Amazingly, I, it's like... First prize is a voicemail. Second prize is like two voicemails. Uh, <laughs> if, if, if you if you want a voicemail or some kind of voice message from Anna Shemansky or Jordan Weissman or even heaven forfend me, um, email your Slate Plus receipt to plus at slate dot com and tell us what you want us to say. And I, the first person to do that will get what they want i'm not entirely sure what what you would want or why you want it but you just want to hear felix whisper sweet nothing (laughs) into your send in your make make it make it an anna one and tell her to speak at normal speed (laughs) and then you can listen to it on like 0.25 x and try and work out what she says can't we just like make like felix's hello into a ringtone and send that (laughs) as a surprise for someone we we, we will we if you want a felix salmon saying hello ringtone email us on plus at slate.com going off like repeatedly <laughs> hello hello, hello. hello. Well, I think you, you like, need to get Felix to sing hello is it me you're looking for you know, exactly <laughs> that would be great at the opera that's going <laughs> on over and over um, anyway yeah the, 
it's it's all going down here at, at Slate. Anything you want, just email plus at slate.com and we will do our best to help you if you do that before anyone else. Um, also, remember the live show, November 15th, it's coming up at the Bell House in Brooklyn. S- tickets and info at slate.com slash live. We will do be doing all manner of foodie awesomeness. And for those of you with kids... You know how the best thing you can do if you have a kid is just plonk them in front of YouTube and they're happy for hours. But sometimes YouTube is not available. And in that case, we have a podcast network for you. It's called Pinna, P-I-N-N-A. And it's a whole bunch of like really cool podcasts just for kids, ad-free, guilt-free. It's an app. So you go to pinna.fm slash listen and you get to try it out for free you'll get to listen to molly and the sugar monster so i mean robin you have kids right yeah are you going to make them listen to molly and the sugar apparently the sugar monster has this mission in life which is to never let kids eat healthy foods and so molly is going to try and stop the sugar monster from doing his job it sounds very worthy and educational but i have to rip the kids off youtube first (laughs) rip the kids off youtube put them onto pinner audio is good for kids because they're not looking at screens right and as we have just heard screens kill 5,947 people every year just in terms of traffic deaths so if you don't want your kids to grow up running people over get them listening to Pinna podcast like, need something for them to listen to in the car which this is obviously <laughs> for Felix <laughs> if you have a car and you have kids <laughs> <laughs> And the good thing is you're going to get so engrossed in these Pinner podcasts that you're not going to get distracted by your phone. So, yes, all of that. Thank you. Hopefully see you on November 15 in person. But failing that, we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.